Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, Penny and Will Robinson became separated from the others and found themselves hopelessly trapped in the dead city ruins, far beneath the surface of the strange planet. Now, suddenly, as they survey their mysterious surroundings... Welcome back, folks, for Episode 5 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the fifth broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled The Hungry Sea. And this episode was full of great action and visuals, but I thought it had some even better dramatic tension built in, especially the elements of conflict that erupt between John and Don as they cope with all the stresses caused by dealing with one crisis after another. What was your hot take? Well, uh, you kind of were waiting for them to start to come to fisticuffs there. <laughs> but uh, it's not over whether or not Don's making the moves on his daughter or anything. It's more like whether or not Don's uh, obeying his orders when Don's the, you know, the in, in many ways, the military superior in some ways. I always kind of look as, at John as being sort of the Ph.D. passenger, but he assumes control in this episode. Well, he really does. And we'll get into that a little bit as we talk about the story. But it's worth mentioning that uh, this is the last episode that uses extensive footage shot from that unaired pilot, No Place to Hide. And it again results in a plot device of having the family on the road while Dr. Smith and the robot are left at home. And it's the last installment of a six-chapter story arc penned by Shimon Winselberg that actually resulted in a filmed episode of the show, The sixth part was never actually made into a script or filmed. And I'll talk about that sixth story briefly when we review the next episode. So you're saying it was never never even recorded for the movie? It wasn't even in the the pilot movie? No, it was not in the pilot movie. 
It was a story that used just a little bit of footage from the pilot, and uh, they decided not to make it into a script or obviously film it. So, Oh, great. Well, yeah. I look forward to hearing about that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. A few quick production notes before we begin talking about this episode. The writer was a guy named William Welch, and as we just said, the story was written by Winselberg. Um, William Welch is an interesting guy. He was a frequent writer on a lot of Irwin Allen productions. He wrote four episodes of Lost in Space, eight episodes of The Time Tunnel, and 34 episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. He also wrote 10 episodes of Land of the Giants. The script editor, again, was Tony Wilson. The director of this episode is a guy named Soby Martin. This episode was filmed from the 30th of August through the 3rd of September 1965, five days. Now, no director had brought an episode in on schedule as of yet, and Martin would be the fourth director to try. Even though he had to keep the crew filming until after 9 o'clock at night on the last day of shooting, he managed to do it. And as a result, he became the second most prolific director for Lost in Space, heading a total of 14 episodes. The episode aired on Wednesday night, October 13th, 1965, and there was no summer repeat. This episode features all the regular characters and no guest stars. Now, when you say that there was uh, uh, two writers, you're saying the first one was basically the writer of the pilot, so he gets credit because that's kind of that all that footage. And then the second one is the one who incorporates that into this story and makes it a complete episode. Is that how that works? Well, Winselberg was basically, he wrote the story. He didn't write any dialogue or shot blocking or anything like that. William Welch was actually the screenwriter who wrote the teleplay. So it's got all the dialogue, it's got, got the you. blocking and everything else like that. So, you know, okay. I'm not an expert on this, but that's basically how I understand it works. Well, sometimes when they say so-and-so wrote the story, I mean, the story can sometimes just be an idea. I mean, they could even, uh, it could just be a description of the story and like, okay, I'll give you credit for the story. We'll use that story. Right. But certainly uh, the guy who writes the, the dialogue and everything is the one who sweats out the details. Correct, correct. It's just this bit with the pilot that makes it sort of confusing because somebody also wrote the dialogue for that pilot. And was that Weis- Weisselberg? Or, that, uh, was both, that? that was both Erwin Allen and Shimon Winselberg wrote the pilot. Okay. Yeah, I know it's a little confusing because you're combining uh, product from several different people. So, Okay, Act 1. The opening that we get at the beginning of this is uh, really pared down from where we were at the beginning. It's only 2 minutes and 45 seconds. We get the narrator recapping our situation from last week. The Robinsons are fleeing plummeting temperatures that they've discovered, uh, and they're abandoning the Jupiter-2 spacecraft and heading south in a desperate bid for survival. But of course, Dr. Smith refuses to accompany the family, and he and the robot remain behind on the ship while the Robinsons and Major West journey south. They encounter some ferocious storms, they take shelter in a nearby cave, and we pick up uh, from the ending of the last episode with Will, Penny, Don, and Judy have become trapped in a stone chamber inside this ancient alien ruin. Uh, And just at that moment, an earthquake uh, threatens to bring the whole place crashing down upon them. And there's lots of screaming. For some reason, they can't get out of this trap. So... John and Maureen come to the rescue, and John's got his laser gun trying to cut them out of the stone chamber. I love this whole bit. It's so reminiscent of Scooby-Doo, you know? Shaggy (laughs) and and Scooby are going to get—they're going to fall into some sort of a compartment with a secret panel. And then uh, Daphne and Freddy, who have 
probably been off shagging somewhere, come to the rescue. <laughs> and then they also get trapped in there, and they all have to wait until uh, Velma comes around and gets them out, you know, with a hairpin or some clever trick that she has up her sleeve. So it's, uh, it brings back a lot of... Of course, Lost in Space was 10 years before, but uh, it's a wonderful trope, and it's it's got that, that Scooby feel to it. it sure and I also does. love the way that the moment that when they fall in there, when uh, Major Wes and, and Judy go in there... <laughs> The door closes behind them, and you know everybody's got their attention on the little mummy or whatever, or should we call it mummy? And uh, <laughs> they they just let the door close again. I mean, you would think if you're trapped, the moment that door opens, you're going to run out. You know, right? <laughs> I guess it, it makes for more interesting theater, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it does. And, and I noticed it was it was almost like a one way revolving door. It would let you in, but it wouldn't let you out, or some sort of uh, uh, alien roach motel. <laughs> or something like that. It it always waits until you scream at the mummy and then it closes the door. That's the key, you know. (laughs) Well, after we come back from credits, of course, we get to see John burn a a path out of that stone. They push the stone out of the way and everybody escapes just in the nick of time as the whole place is coming down. It's kind of dramatic there. What did you think? Uh, Well, I liked it. I mean, and and I I was getting into it, but, you know, you couldn't help but notice that the arches of the columns, when they separate each other, it's kind of obvious they're paper mache because they're (laughs) rocking in different uh, directions and bumping against each other. You say, well, that, that, that cross piece has got to fall down. I mean, they didn't have super glue back then. Uh, So, you know, but uh, what I, what I really enjoyed about it was watching both uh, John and Maureen dodge the spider webs, okay? You expect her to dodge the spider web. She's a woman. She wants to keep her hair perfect. But even even John <laughs> is going underneath every single one of those spider webs. He's not going to let those spider webs mess up his hair. He might lose his three children in the process, but that hair is going to remain nice and beautiful. <laughs> must have been his good side he was protecting, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, they managed to all escape, and we see them resume their chariot journey south. Meanwhile, we cut back to the Jupiter II, and Dr. Smith is sitting there with only the robot for company, trying to keep warm. Temperatures at the Jupiter II continue to plummet, and Dr. Smith starts to fear uh, that he's going to freeze to death. Because, and this is, as you mentioned last time, it's kind of a funny (laughs) uh, lost in space science. You know, the Jupiter 2 is perfectly capable of staying warm in the vacuum of space, but it just can't cope with this planetary cool snap. Yeah. Well, uh, I did enjoy the interchange he has with the robot. Uh, You're really starting to see the personality of not only uh, Smith, but he's almost projecting this personality onto the robot at that point. The robot (laughs) tells him about this terrible orbit that, you know, can't possibly be true, according to Smith. And then when Smith uh, calls him on it, the robot basically says, you know, bad day to in, bad day to out. Look at them. Poor benighted fools. Well, they're no concern of mine, but you are. Where's the orbital data I asked you for? Mm, Data processing now complete. Results contradictory. Contradictory? You're not supposed to come up with contradictory conclusions. You're a robot. Where's your pride? The function of any computer is to draw conclusions from provided data. If conclusions are contradictory, provided data is at fault. Oh, so now you're trying to put the blame onto me, are you? There's a lot more human in you than I thought, my metallurgical friend. 
Right. And uh, <laughs> Smith gets immediately defensive. You know, oh, so now you're baby me, are you? There's more human in you than meets the eye. You know, so it's it's pretty fun to see the harbinger of just where this relationship is quick, quickly spiraling down the toilet. It's true. And I also like, you know, Dick Tufeld, the guy that did the voice for the robot, you know, he's he's progressed already quite a bit from his early, you know, very mechanical reading of his lines. And now he's actually adding a little bit of humor himself. Did you notice the way he sort of rolls his R's and goes, mm, data processing rapidly? <laughs> it's a really funny way of, <laughs> of repeating things. And uh, I thought that was kind of clever as well. Oh, I think uh, one of um, Smith's most choice lines, and boy, did this this still holds true today, where he says, that's the problem with people today, civilization, too many specialists. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's a specialist. Whatever happened to the Renaissance man? (laughs) And then, of course, the robot responds, talking about the Renaissance man, but... Uh, you know, I, I had a friend who always said, you know, the problem with specialists is you keep learning more and more about less and less until finally you know everything about nothing at all. And uh, <laughs> it certainly seems apt in this story. Another, Yeah, it's true. Uh, another part I liked about this was uh, when the robot says, hey, you need to examine the data on the about the planet's orbit. Dr. Smith opens a little compartment at the uh, robot's belly button and he pulls... <laughs> Pulls out what looks like a stock ticker tape and starts reading. <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> IBM is up three points. I have to leave and sell immediately. No. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And he does pull it out there. And you know, I don't recall seeing this this ticker tape in too many other episodes at all. But you know, it's been a while. Still, uh, it may it be was... a one off. I can't remember myself either. But it's a very good scene with Smith and the robot. And and as you said, uh, Smith's superlatives are really priceless. He's very dry and droll. And then uh, he comes to the conclusion rather quickly, uh, based on what the robot says, in, within one hour, 12 minutes and 58 seconds, the temperature is going to be below freezing, uh, and he's going to die. And this is one of the fir- this is actually the first instance uh, of Smith uh, using one of the uh, what would be later many alliterative insults for the robot. He calls him a uh, pusillanimous puppet. <laughs> Uh, you know, um, we have to give uh, a little credit here more to the scriptwriters because uh, uh, I did go back and see the biography on on uh, Zachary Smith, Jonathan Harris, yes. and it mentioned in that uh, A and E biography that it was actually the middle of the first season in which he was told he could start, you know, using uh, his own input in the story. Ah. So I, I'm getting the feeling that, you know, this is one of those legends that may have taken on a little bit more power than it absolutely needed. I kind of think that all these wonderful insults were really, you know, belong to the scriptwriter at this point. It's just, and it does seem a little hard to imagine that he would have really jumped right in there and uh, uh, made dramatic changes in the first several episodes. But uh, wh- whoever it is, they deserve wonderful credit because it, it is w- uh, just delightful uh, banter that they have. And uh, Yeah. Well, it must have gotten some good feedback because he, uh, it, this was, the, this, I do know this was the first time it was used and it, it set a trend uh, going forward. Uh, everything from, uh, uh, bubble-headed booby to mechanical maven and all sorts of other ones. Uh, they're always a uh, mm-hmm. choice. Well, they uh, they also mentioned in that uh, uh, biography that it was the fan mail that came in from those first six episodes where people were just loving Smith so much that that 
cemented his legacy of remaining on the show beyond any sort of uh, early uh, bow out through uh, surprise death or whatever. So uh, not maybe not so necessarily his own writing contributions, but just his performance endeared him and the fan mail uh, turned things around for him. And that probably also set the stage for him to start making these changes because he felt, you know, like I've got that much clout at this point. I know I'm getting all this wonderful fan mail. Uh, they're going to allow me that sort of freedom. <laughs> sure. Did you notice that uh, it's 125 degrees Fahrenheit, not Celsius? Okay, so, you know, all hail sedati- sedition. Apparently, the globalist plot to turn the world into a <laughs> metric. metric world did not wor- work. You know, we still, we may be interested inches and uh, uh and feet may have lost out to centimeters but uh fahrenheit still rules supreme and that's probably because the 1960s audience might not have recognized what celsius was i mean metric was more obvious than uh celsius degrees that would have just been too confusing for them I, that's my guess anyway you're right they the ni- 1960s audience wouldn't uh, be familiar with how cold uh you know, 50 degrees centigrade below zero is, but the Fahrenheit's going to be a bigger number anyway, so it sounds more dramatic. But that's yes. a good point. I love it. Uh, we're still we're still using the old uh, English uh, imperial temperature scale here. All right, so we cut back to the Robinsons, and this was a part I really enjoyed. There's these are these effect sequences with the chariot uh, both crossing the frozen sea, which is what we get next. I thought that was a great. Uh, great effect sequence i love all the little icebergs sticking up <laughs> i don't know how realistic that is but they sure looked cool and the, the the model of the chariots crawling across that that absolutely smooth ice surface with these jutting icebergs uh, sticking up through the ice i thought that was really really impressive yeah you gotta feel a, a certain amount of compassion to the janitors you must have spent all night buffing that 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 wax floor and sound stage number seven <laughs> to get that ice to really look you know very frozen it does and, and i give the the uh, cast credit you know they've got their parkas all cinched up and they're doing their best uh, to look as if they're sort of shivering and uh it's it's definitely very cold outside and, and we're we're left in no doubt about that so we get that beautiful little sequence as they're traveling across the ice then we cut back to the Jupiter 2, and Smith is standing there still trying to stay warm, and uh, he decides he needs a little cup of coffee to help keep him warm, and he asks the, the, the robot to, to warm it up, and I love this little bit. Peace and tranquility. It's wonderful. A bit brisk, perhaps, but hardly enough to be concerned about. Would you mind warming that up a trifle? Warming time activated. Splendid. That's enough. That's enough. I said warm it up, not boil it away. (gasps) You bungling incompetent. If I had any other company here, I'd have you broken down for spare parts. Oh, yeah, he shocks it. With uh, what fifty thousand volts or whatever, and of course Smith is angry because now it's too hot. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to sue you like McDonald's. Yeah. It's, it's never just right. <laughs> Smith Smith has to have someone to berate, and it, it's going to be the robot since he's the only one left behind. And this uh, is actually a setup for the pr- the joke that will come later when Smith is complaining that it's too cold and he wish he could be warmed up some, and the robot starts. 
basically sneaking up behind Smith, not deliberately, <laughs> but he's about to shock Smith into warming him up. <laughs> I know. And of course, Smith has to caution him. I don't warm up that way. Cease, desist immediately. <laughs> uh, you know, um, there was one little aspect in that going into the uh, ocean, the frozen ice that I thought was interesting. I'd be kind of curious exactly how much of that was filmed with the, the chariot and the doubles, because you could tell as they are approaching the sea, there's a, a shot behind the crew on board of the chariot. And it looks like, uh, I'm assuming that that was, uh, you know, the, the screens outside projecting, front projection and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, it was a rear projection screen, I think, yeah. When except, it, except, you know, you're in the rear looking forward, so it's a forward projection screen. But what was really interesting is as they pass a boulder, a shadow sweeps across the group. Okay, so, uh, you know, rear projection doesn't do that. Rear projection is a projection of light. It doesn't create shadows. I mean, the whole screen could go black, and that would make a shadow. But the whole screen doesn't go black. So there, a, a boulder goes off on their right side, and a shadow sweeps across the cast within the chariot. So that meant that either they were outside with the doubles shooting this thing, or they cleverly had somebody walk between the light a, a light, a, a light on the soundstage that was going in on the side with some sort of silhouette to create that shadow. Uh, it, it was really a, a nice effect because your mind just kind of catches it, and it just seems you just you ignore it. It seems so natural, but if it hadn't have been there, you might have picked it up and said, "Wait a minute, we just passed this long column and nothing happened with the lighting situation." Mm. Uh, I I was I was uh, just surprised by that. You know, every once in a while they do things that are kind of ridiculously uh they for, they forget some continuity error but then they do these other things that show real you know forethought that i never would have thought of so it's it's impressive well it definitely worked on me because i don't actually remember that specific point about it i'm gonna now you've got me curious enough i'm gonna go back and watch it again but it it, it must have been convincing because i i thought that whole sequence looked very realistic especially when you're doing the close-ups of the of the crew inside of the the chariot and so forth so i'll check that out well, now that I gave the compliment, let me then come back with the uh, the little oopsie-daisy. And that's when Smith is having his coffee, and it's too hot. He burns himself, and you know now he drinks it, and he sits down. And you may have noticed when he sat down that something felt wrong. They go from a, a kind of a long shot. It's actually kind of a, a long medium shot to a close medium shot. And there's something wrong there. It's a jump shot or something. It just doesn't feel right. And I had to watch it several times before I caught it. And what it was was Smith has his hand on the coffee pot, and he pulls his hand back, and he starts to sit down. And then they edit, and it's called a, a cut on action because that's what makes it convincing someone starts to sit down and it cuts from a medium shot to a closer medium shot as they complete the the action of sitting down well mm. when they cut to him sitting down now his arm is back on the coffee pot and he pulls it back <laughs> i remember that and i di i didn't quite put it all together but i definitely remember as you started talking about it, I, uh, it came to me yes he, he had his hand on the coffee pot when they cut back to him didn't he yes is, yep you're right you're right uh, well, 
That's a, well, no, that, that's that's why this director stayed on because he didn't go back and say, "Hey, let's reshoot that." You know, uh-uh, that'll be nine thirty, and you know what happens at nine thirty? We get into golden hours, <laughs> double time. Uh, yeah, it's true. I did love this part during the coffee scene where Smith makes the assumption that the Robinsons have already met their maker, and uh, he start <laughs> he starts having this little monologue about preparing for a simple memorial service with flat. Well, oh no, with no flowers, but of course. A eulogy and who but dr smith could deliver such a beautiful eulogy <laughs> oh the poor fools a pathetic ending for the most noble of experiments perhaps a eulogy yes and then when he finds out that they're still alive it's all, he's actually kind of disappointed yes oh, what a pity it would have been such a beautiful eulogy yes i of course will deliver the eulogy simple but quite Dignified. I have located Chariot. Hopelessly wrecked somewhere, no doubt. Chariot is in motion. What a pity. It would have been a very beautiful eulogy. Well, perhaps another time. <laughs> uh, that, re- that one really got me. It was, it was classic Dr. Smith, so... Yeah. All right. Well, that that basically wraps up Act One. So Act Two, we start off for the next morning back at the Jupiter Two, and Smith is informed by the robot that the temperature has ceased to fall, and in fact, it's rising. And he's initially relieved by this turn of events, and he has the robot analyze the orbit of the planet in order to find out why this could happen. And he, like you said, he he he's always questioning the robot, and he disbelieves the robot at first. But then after he takes a look at the, the ticker tape once again, he comes to the conclusion that, oh, yes, this, is, this must be true. And he hides the explanation from us, but he does command the robot to no longer worry about having to eliminate the Robinsons because he's now sure they face certain death. They're not going to freeze to death. They're going to roast alive. And this is a actually a critical part of the plot. You know, a lot of people miss this because it's mentioned in almost uh, like, well, you can forget about my earlier, somewhere in that bubble head of yours I, uh, is an earlier command to eliminate the Robinsons. You can forget that now. They're certainly going to die. Well, this is the end of the, you know, Death Calm 4. You don't have to kill the Robinsons. This is why Dr. Smith now is no longer a murder threat. He's still a problem guy, but if if you're watching this series and you're asking, why did he suddenly no longer want to kill him? This is that moment. And and it's right, because you know, you have to tell the robot not to follow that through on that command, or it is gonna stick in his bubble headed mind until the next opportunity when they're uh, alone. So it was a subtle little uh uh detail, but a very important one. It sure was. No more phase one. So the Robinsons haven't quite finished their drive because we cut back to them. They're still in the frozen sea, and they're just about to get uh, through to the other side of that frozen sea when they also discover that the temperature is rising. I love this shot, the shot of the interior, and they have the, the, the icebergs and the sea going past them. And just before they get off the ice, there's also now an earth tremor. And John makes the kind of the telling, uh, foreshadowing comment, maybe we should have stayed back at the spaceship. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's sort of telling us that they're not really out of the woods yet. I I do love these uh, scenes as they're running across. And at first they have that, you know, the, it hits something. It's not a Cyclops footprint this time. It's an earth tremor. And the interesting thing is that they're going to feel that tremor back in the Jupiter 2 later on. 
So right. it's almost like these these two scenes are actually, you know, one comes ahead of the other, but these two scenes are, could be occurring simultaneously. And that's sort of important because if you remember, they're talking about the temperature being 125 degrees below and uh, and dropping rapidly. And then in chronological order, we go back to the Jupiter 2 and the temperature is 125 degrees and falling rapidly. But you would have thought, well, wait a minute, if it was falling rapidly, now it would be like 130 degrees. Well, you know, there's that, it, this all could have been happening simultaneously. Just because we're not watching it simultaneously doesn't mean that it's not happening simultaneously. The only hmm. time that that's clear that it isn't is when he actually contacts the chariot and he makes his plea, but we're getting ahead of ourselves there. Right. Well, uh, good to segue though, because uh, we cut back to the Jupiter 2 and Smith, Smith is arguing with himself uh, and, uh, about what he should do next. He's not getting any consolation from the robot. And you can sort of tell he's starting to miss other com- companies. He actually starts complaining that the robot's not very good company. He calls him a cuckoo clock, I think, at one point. Yeah, <laughs> one and point. another point, he picks up one of the pieces of the chessboard, and he says, Oh, what's the point? You just beat me in three moves. <laughs> <laughs> so, Plus, you catch me cheating. What good are you? <laughs> yeah. And all of this leads him to decide he missed. Uh, he's going to make a radio call and try to warn the Robinsons of the impending peril. So it's it's no longer just about uh, being happy that they're going to roast alive. He's going to try to make a, an effort to save them. Jupiter two calling. Jupiter two calling. Chariot, do you read me? Smith. What's the matter with the radio? We're getting some sort of cosmic interference. Smith, this is Major West. What do you want? I can't hear you. Well, we're getting a lot of cosmic interference. Get to the point, Smith. You must return to the spaceship at once. This cosmic interference is just the first signs of... Now, why should we turn back? So you can get out of the crack at us with that robot of yours? Why do you want to save your own miserable neck? On the contrary, I'm attempting to save your miserable necks. Turn back at once before it's too late. You're in terrible danger, you to believe me smith this is robinson now why on earth should we believe you may i remind you my dear sir that we are no longer on earth oh that's very clever and unless you turn around and come back now you won't survive another hour what would he make of that well i don't know he uh, he sounds really worried You don't suppose he... The only thing I suppose is that uh, he's an expert at sounding that way. And I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw one of those giants. Let me have it. Smith, this is West again. Nice try. Give us a call again sometime. Over and out. Well, it wouldn't have done any harm to listen to what he had to say. Smith! Smith, this is Robinson. Can you hear me? Well, whatever it was, it's too late now. Don just cuts him off. And um, I thought that was kind of uh, interesting because it leads to one of the the first of several instances of John being just a little critical of Don's actions at first. Yeah, you could have at least heard what he had to say, you know, which is true. I mean, we're all sitting there going, we don't know what it is. And I love the fact that they don't reveal that at first right you know smith knows it's the orbit and the robot knows it's the orbit but we know it's something but we don't know what it is so that's that element of suspense is really burning a hole in our patience 
And uh, we know that it's something serious, but we don't know what it is. So we, we're desperate to know what it is, and now it's been drug out even longer. Yes. Well, John tries to call him back, but he can't make a connection. Too much cosmic interference, I suppose. Uh, yep. And back at the Jupiter 2, Smith is uh, indignant at first, and he says, well, good riddance if uh, I tried to do my best. But, uh, and then he thinks about it for a second. He says, uh, he looks at the robot. <laughs> he says, oh, my gosh. And he thinks one more time, if, the, if they do die, I'm going to be left with nothing but this animated cuckoo clock. <laughs> clocked for company so he's uh, he has this great look at the uh, at the robot and he says now maybe they'd listen to you you have the sort of open face people seem to trust why not my dear friend how would you like to take a little walk say 70 or 80 miles I have a message for the Robinsons a special delivery message And I love that scene where he's going through the night, you know, and his arms are kind of flailing along. And you're wondering, how fast is this robot going in the sand? I can't imagine what it's like. But you know what? We skimmed over a priceless line that definitely deserves attention here. And that's Major Wes's line in the chariot when he hangs up on Smith. He says, I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw one of those giants. (laughs) That's good. It is good, yeah. Nice try, Smith. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so now the Robinsons are enjoying their little night bivouac and enrolls the, the robot. He does, but before the robot gets there, I thought it was kind of interesting, too. I like this bit where they're, they're, uh, Don picks up this piece of, it looks like charred wood or something, and he picks up this thing. What do you make of this? It's like a frozen charred and then frozen. That's kind of strange. So we're getting the, we're getting the, the hint now that this planet has some very, very unusual climactic conditions, and I think that was kind of cool. But the robot arrives on the scene. We're getting ready for strike two for Don in John's <laughs> eyes because he doesn't, trigger happy Don, he doesn't wait for anything. He just pulls a laser out and starts firing at the robot. <laughs> well, you know, well, the, the best part about this is it proves that Smith was right all along. You know, <laughs> Smith said, you know, oh, that's the military for you. It's always kill or be killed. They always strike first and think later. You know, that's precisely what Don's is proving his point. He actually is. But this really upsets Will because Will, as we noted from the last episode, has really started to take a shine towards the robot. And he's trying to keep Don from shooting him, but it's too late. I love the scene where the robot just sort of deflates and and collapses in on himself. I thought that was a neat effect. (laughs) Well, what I what I find hysterical about that whole bit is later on, they're going to be, you know, trying to preserve themselves from being roasted alive. And they just leave the robot right out there (laughs) to take all the the, the intense (laughs) heat of the sun nobody thinks of maybe rolling him underneath the shelter nah he's the robot he'll take it that robot that rubber's good rope rubber it's not going to burst into flames like everything else <laughs> well did you notice that when the robot was sitting out there though i like that point you bring up he he's he's really just almost collapsed in on himself and in the book that i've been reading the book uh erwin allen's uh, lost in space by uh, mark cushman they talk about that the, the actor that was inside the robot was a guy named bob may and he was under contract he was getting basically a daily rate so every day that he was being filmed was a day that he was getting getting paid and so in order <laughs> for erwin to avoid having to, to pay him that day instead of having him sit in the suit <laughs> He just had the suit sitting out there without the act. 
tractor, so it's it's not even it's not even standing like it would normally <laughs> normally do. But hey, it saved a day of pay, and they were over budget. Uh, and you know that if it had been the other way around, and he would have saved money by having Bill in there, he would have had him in there. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I I hate to do this, but I mean, you know, it is in your contract. You need to be there. Oh gosh. Well, uh, so uh, uh, tell us about how uh, you know they find out about the orbit. They uh, they end that scene with the robot collapsed. The the end of that scene, I just want to mention that that was another time John kind of chastised Don. So we're we're seeing the tension building up here. So the next morning, Act Three begins with the family is packing up, and we see a little scene where Will is asking Don about the robot. And I thought this was kind of nice. Don actually says in a in a friendly way to Will, "You're pretty fond of that robot," and of course Will nods that he is, and we pan over to John who's kneeled in front of the robot and he's got another p- piece of ticker tape and he's sort of pondering this whole thing and it, he explains to Don and Will that the temperature is not only rising it's rising rapidly and it's because of this eccentric orbit he says that the planet has it's almost like an ellipse and so it's a really fast orbit that's for sure because they're going from extreme cold now to extreme hot in just a matter of a day or so. Yeah, they never really explained this, but apparently uh, the orbit is, uh, unlike Earth, this isn't an orbit that takes a year. This is an orbit that takes a, a 24-hour period. I mean, it's a daily orbit. The, the, the planet goes around the sun in an entire orbit in one day. Right. Because he says this. He says this is going to happen every day. But, of course, it never happens again in the sea. <laughs> This is going to be Groundhog Day number one, and then it's going to be Groundhog Day half day for the rest of the series. Well, Don's not buying the explanation because it comes from the robot, and of course he smells a rat named Smith. And this results in a big argument between Don and John, and this is strike three. And John's just, he finally puts his foot down. Then we must have been at this end away from the sun. That means we're heading back in close to it now. Is that what Dr. Smith tried to warn us about? That's right, Will. In a matter of hours, we're going to be in danger of roasting alive. And there's no time to get back to the ship. We're going to have to build a shelter right here. Do you mean to say you're going to pay any attention to what Smith says after all he's done? Who cares what he's done? These are facts. Are they? The man's a pathological liar. Now, what makes you think he suddenly reformed? Do you think he'd lift a finger to save our lives? Now, we were headed south. I say we keep going that way. And you're in no position to give orders. Oh, but you are. It's too bad there isn't judgment to go along with that self-confidence. Now, that's enough out of you. Whether you like it or not, I'm going to try to save your life along with the others. We get that shelter rigged now. Boy, Dad, you really read him out. As you said, uh, Major West might, might, in a military terms, outrank the professor, but the professor assumes command. He says, nope, they don't even have time to move. They've got to shelter in place and and hope and pray that they can survive. This tension yeah. has really been building for a while. Yeah. And I thought it was pretty well played. Did you? Was it believable, the interchange oh, between yeah. the two? Oh, yeah. The only part was that he didn't say the line, and I don't like what you're doing with my daughter either. I mean, you know, you would have thought it would have all come to a head, but no, the honeymoon is over. Over. There's not going to be any grandchildren for the Robinsons on this colony. And uh, it just looks like it's uh, the Hatfield and McCoys have just uh, splintered from the Robinson family because they are 
royally pissed at each other. And even Bill, the little Billy, says that, you know, gee, Dad, you know, you really read in the riot act. So, And then to add insult to injury, Judy chimes in to chide Don as well. There really is trouble in paradise. Although I do have to say, I like the fact that Don isn't a wimp in this scene. He doesn't just buckle under just because the girlfriend comes over to, to take daddy's side in the argument. Because I think today they would have played that totally different. Don would have been <laughs> properly yeah. chastised and the mansplaining would be over. And uh, in this case, it was still okay to be masculine, I guess, back in the 60s. And I kind of appreciated the fact that John stood up for himself. I mean, for one thing, he saved the family by doing this. Absolutely. Uh, but this is a uh, polar opposite of the way he was on the on the ship. Where it's sort of like, we'll let the computer decide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting to see how uh, he interacts with Maureen at that point. And she comes over and he explains oh, yeah. what's going on with the orbit. Yeah. And uh, she's very, very concerned. And she's basically saying, whatever our chances. And, and he comes down and he says, honey, I... I've never lied to you before. I don't know. <laughs> you know. And I was sitting there going, okay, wait a minute. Dude, you got three children, and you're telling me you've never lied to your wife at all this time? I mean, come on. <laughs> never, you know? Oh, no, the roast tastes great. You know, really, yeah. I don't, don't, the burning part doesn't bother me. Oh, no, no, honey, you don't look fat. I mean, you, yeah, you look this, beautiful this... <laughs> pregnant, you know? Oh, yeah, let's have a fourth one. What the hell? It's not like the planet's overpopulated or anything. I mean, I'm just not buying it. I just... <laughs> yeah. They're going to try to shelter in place, and they're going to try to survive. And they put up these interesting, and more Reynolds wrap but comes out, these Reynolds wrap uh, shields that they put up around the chariot. And they pass out some space blankets, and they're just going yeah. to have to hide under them. It looks like a giant Jiffy Pop thing by the time it's done, <laughs> you know, especially after the suds come on by. And did you notice that, well, later, later on when there's the earthquake, and they try to put the shield back up, they're like lifting this really heavy, you know, <laughs> piece of aluminum foil and then they put it in place and the thing shakes you know like a little piece of cardboard that it is yeah you know? but yeah. it's sort of like hey yeah. these guys do deserve academy award for yeah. acting i mean they always had me convinced it was heavy <laughs> they really did they just barely get the shelter up in place and they just barely get under the blankets before that scorching hot sun comes roaring in and we get that great sun flare effect and i thought this was really good too that yeah the plants start to catch on fire and the the smoke is coming in and uh, as we go to commercial we can't be sure that they've survived because this looks terrifying yeah the only thing i think that they lacked that i was kind of hoping would happen would be one of those giant cyclopsian hairballs to come rolling in on fire you know as that all occurred <laughs> that would have topped it off even more but did you notice that um earlier on when don is doubting this is going to occur he says something like you know don't try to convince me i'm a pilot i'm not a geologist and and uh, Dr. Robin says, well, I am a geologist. And it's sort of like, wait a minute. You know, all this time I thought you were a smart doctor. I mean, you know, I, I, ge geologists are not stupid. But, you know, if I'm going to be going into outer space, I'm not sure I want to travel with a geologist. You know, I mean, how's that going to help them? The only thing that helps them is they seem to be very apt at landing on planets that have lots of rocks on them. You know, <laughs> it's just like, that's what that's apparently what his area of expertise is. He's a geologist. Well, apparently they knew they were going to be out of fuel, so they needed someone who could do a <laughs> drill for a deuteronium or something in the future. I don't know. That's interesting. I, I forgot he said that because I always assumed Will was the geologist because he's the, he's the one that's always going around collecting rocks, isn't he? No, but he says his area of expertise is electronics. He did say uh, that. I've got it all confused, apparently. So, Anyway, 
we come back from the break and we find out, thankfully, that the family does survive. Uh, they're a little worse for wear. In fact, that, like you said, that Jiffy Pop shield is all scorched and uh, they come crawling out from under those uh, space blankets. They get to share some little th- thimbles of water. I love how they keep the, don't gulp it, don't gulp it. And, uh, <laughs> and their hair's all messed up and they've got sweat stains and uh, perspiration on their faces. Uh, it's played out a little bit, but uh, everybody's glad that they've survived and they're glad that it's over. Although I did notice Don had to serve himself the water. Uh, he didn't get the little uh, help that everybody else did. Here, only a gulp. Don, you can have as much as you want. Go ahead. Just glug it down. <laughs> I think he's still on uh, uh, on probation with John. <laughs> yeah. So we cut back to another scene. They're packing up the chariot, and Marine asks, are we really going back to the Jupiter 2 we just got here? And John says something that makes sense, but it's never really brought up again. That uh, The temperature cycle is going to go uh, repeat over and over again, and they, they're going to be safer at the ship. So they got to get packed up and start heading back. We cut over to Will, who's accusing Don of murdering the robot. Mur- he's murdering the robot because Don's trying to take it apart and pack it away for the journey. Yeah, this is the first time that uh, John actually sticks up for Don, though, after the incident uh, with the, the solar uh, close call with the sun. And he says, well, you know, he's got a point. You, we, you don't want the robot rolling about inside the, the chariot when we're going across the water. So it seems that... It so- you know, things are a little bit better. There's tension there, but now Don realizes, you know what, John's right about the, uh, was right about the orbit. I was wrong about that. He doesn't come out and say it, but uh, consequently, John is also a little bit respect, more respectful of Don and saying, you know, we're going to, we're going to do things Don way in this one thing. But then it backpedals again when he says, you know, I'm going to need time to realign the solar batteries. And, and John says, no dice, you know, we got to go right away. Yeah, uh, why? Why do yeah. why do they have to go right away? I don't get the urgency right at that moment. Could they spend an hour to <laughs> to, to line the batteries? I mean, <laughs> because the because the script editor is waiting for us at soundstage number six. Uh, but whatever the reason, they they got to get going. Uh, well, I, I thought maybe they were going to have a part where they were on the, the the ice and it's starting to melt. But of course, when they get there, it's all raging sea so yeah well i want to mention you talked about when they're packing that robot away that was also another script device because all the footage they had of them going back across the ocean later in the story was taken from the pilot and there was no robot in the pilot so they had to show (laughs) that the robot was was not in the chariot so they they had the scene with him being packed away to take that into effect they really get credit for seamlessly, you know, adding Smith and moving the right. robot in and out of this thing because the robot wasn't in that pilot. I mean, he, apparently he wasn't built at that time. They wanted him, but they didn't have him ready. Correct. So uh, the way they did it uh, worked out really, really well. You don't detect it at all, and it's, it is kind of fun to go back and say, okay, well, this is what they've spliced in, and that's what they've taken out. And I can't wait to go back and see that pilot film without it. It's going to be surreal. You know, it's almost going to be like an alternative reality of Lost in Space. So John again puts his foot down and says, nope, we got to pack up. We got to leave right now. But uh, Don does sort of ominously warn John. He says, well, okay, I'm not going to argue with you, but I can't guarantee we'll get there alive. And (laughs) and of course, of course, that is uh, another uh, foreshadowing of what's to come. Be like my parents. You know, if you fall and break both your legs, don't come running to me. (laughs) 
So they began their journey back to the Jupiter 2 and they start to recross the sea, but it's completely melted at this point and it's just a, a, a choppy ocean. And this was probably the highlighted terms of the special effects for me. When they get into that stormy part of the ocean and the, the waves are, are just crashing up against the chariot. And all of a sudden, this is like one of Irwin's later hit movies, The Poseidon Adventure, because uh, instead of a tidal wave, we've got a giant uh, whirlpool, which they're going towards. And they're trying to steer clear of it, but now the chariot decides not to respond to any commands. Uh, thinking i told you so <laughs> i was just waiting for this moment here it is i'm not gloating i'm not gloating but i'm not course, gloating but i'm also not gloating yeah well i was uh, you know to me john should have been the one to climb up on top of the chariot but don decides to play the martyr and he goes up there and uh it's 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 harry man and this scene was really great because the water is just like crashing in like they, there's not just buckets of water it looks like there's barrels of water being poured inside that chariot while everybody's sitting there yeah you can tell this is one of the uh special effects that since water is free Irwin's going to use a lot of it <laughs> there was a cute little interview i saw on youtube with don uh, or um Mark Goddard uh, talking about when they filmed that scene, he said that the crew had a lot of fun pouring the water on top of the actors. And he said, of course, Billy Moomy and Angela Cartwright were loving it, but all the rest of the actors weren't. And he said he nearly quit that day because, because he said <laughs> he was like drowning there. But uh, and, and Don's up there and he gets swept off the uh, off the top of the chariot. And did you notice how hysterical Judy became? Oh, yeah. But, you know, y you can tell he's grabbed hold of not the bottom ring, but the top ring of the chariot, okay? So they're all like, what, Don's gone. He got swept off. And it's like, wait a minute. This chariot is 360 degrees of plexiglass. How can you not see that he's stuck against that window right there with that fish face smeared right up against the glass? I mean, come on. I know. Well, they're all facing forward. They want to have their faces right at the camera. You know, they're not, they're not looking for I a... would love to turn around, but I can't bear to lose you get the backside of my head. Yeah. <laughs> It's not my good side. Uh, <laughs> so um, Don is all is gone and almost forgotten. And so, in fact, they've kind of moved on for a minute or two there. You know, so, well, I guess that's all we'll see of Don. At least, <laughs> which is actually kind of realistic. I mean, you know, their lives are they, they're they're about to die. Is what they probably figure. But uh, Judy does come and make it pretty clear that uh, she wishes that you know she had spent a little bit more quality time with them before the her, her number was up. Yeah. Well, he miraculously reappears and the chariot is fixed and somehow they they manage to get a, across that uh, stormy sea without completely going down the drain, as it were. 
Well, I got to interrupt here because there's one line in there that deserves to be inscribed in stone. And this is when they were trying to fix the the chariot. And what is he called out? He asked for a tool. What's the tool? A solar wrench. Oh, yes, a solar wrench. (laughs) The people of the future so weak that they can't turn a wrench with using manual power they need solar powered wrenches i mean this is incredible but anyway that that's just again the 1960s everything's solar everything's you know atomic it's like you know it's scientific it's not just a wrench it's a solar wrench yeah i gotta get me one of those solar wrenches they would go really well with the telsa (laughs) (laughs) you can't fix that with a regular wrench you need a solar wrench i'm not even a mechanic and i know you're trying to screw me on that one (laughs) the next we cut to a scene and i thought this was really kind of interesting this is a definitely a scene you probably wouldn't see in this day and age where the robinsons stop they're back they're back out of the sea and in a jungle they stop to give thanks a showstopper I he I mean the family actually sits and reads it st- kneels right and I mean this is so clearly not 1997 in our lifespan I mean you know now they'd be protesting the national anthem when they kneel and mm. you know uh, the cops and the president or whatever else but here they're actually offering thanks to God and apparently it's like a yeah maybe they're Muslim. Maybe they're Jewish, but with a name like Robinson, you know, it's probably just Waspy. And it's so much 1960-esque. You know? It is. It is. And I thought even the bloop looked uh, suitably reverent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he you... must have been. They must have baptized him underneath that helmet, you know. <laughs> yeah, you would never see that today. But that was that was kind of – it was uh, – I have to be honest, it was a little jarring, actually, at first. I it was is. like, wow, I, yeah. I, I wasn't expecting that. I had forgotten that completely. So, But it uh, was also very much in keeping with the classic Robinsons, because they did that a lot in the book and stuff. The classic Swiss Family Robinson? Yeah, yeah. Swiss Family Robinson. Exactly, exactly. I think you're right. So the chariot finally arrives back at the ship, and we get a little recycled uh, scene here from the pre the episode Island in the Sky, where we see Smith looking out the porthole, and he exclaims, Robinson alive? Impossible. That was an exact scene from a previous episode. And you might have kind of noticed it if you were watching it real time but the tell is that he's back wearing his air force jumpsuit in that instead oh wow that. i just yeah. thought it was a reference to that exact line i remember the line because it reminded me of the flash gordon scene, right you know, flash right. gordon alive impossible right. but uh no that that is funny that they did that now you you kind of uh just uh glossed over the fact that as they're heading back Again, they go through the lush tropical garden, which apparently has grown in just a matter of minutes from being burnt to cinders. And now you have a lush Amazonian jungle. (laughs) But, you know, who's keeping count? It's still a nice scene. It's a strange planet. Yes, it's a strange planet. You can't predict what things are. Like you said, this is a planet that we've never seen before. Most unusual. Um, so arriving back at the Jupiter 2, we get the scene, and John and Don put their previous disagreements aside. I guess I owe you an apology. What for? You know what for. Might have allowed you to realign those solar batteries. Forget it. We got back, didn't we? Sure we got back. <laughs> you two aren't angry anymore? Now, do I look angry? Huh? <laughs> Don, you nearly got killed back there. Was it because my dad wouldn't let you realign the batteries? Now, where did you get an idea like that? Hmm? 
No, it was just uh, what I said. A loose connection. Oh, then my dad was right? He's the boss, isn't he? Yeah. Come on, give us a hand here. All is forgiven. They shake hands. And we get a cute little scene where uh, Will comes up and and uh, he's sort of baiting uh, Don to say, Dad, my dad was wrong, wasn't he? Or, or uh, is that why we almost uh, got, got killed? And Don sort of puts him straight with a little white lie and says, well, your dad's the boss now, isn't he? He sort of avoids answering directly. Isn't but, that uh, just like a kid? You know, they're playing right. both sides. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised Judy didn't then come up next and say, well, you sure showed him, didn't you? You know? Yeah. Now we're coming to the end of the show, and we get another recycled scene, and John's writing his Dear Diary again. And this is exactly the same footage from our previous episode of The Giants. You even get the the little cuddle from Maureen and everything, but we've got different narration. Oh, I I was just thinking this is one of those Stepford wife moments, you know, where every <laughs> every bit of lovemaking and affection is always identical to the last. You know, she doesn't change anything. <laughs> So he sums up their survival situation in the strange new home, and we've put a bow on the end of the story here. And next we cut to the upper deck, and we're really moving to what's going to be a trend for the rest of the season, where we've completed this story, and we're going to set up a teaser for the next episode. We So we go upstairs to the upper deck, and Will is working on the radio. He's trying to raise anybody, and the robot, the robot is pr- uh, playing the guitar, uh, and the Dr. electric guitar. Did you notice that? It was an electric sounding guitar, you know, like uh, uh, something you hear on the surf music and stuff. It's not an acoustic. It looks like an acoustic, but it's sounding like an electric guitar. Yes. Well, I'm just very impressed that the robot managed to do all those cl- uh, chords with his little claws there. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. He probably has an adapter like he did with the chess moves, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Smith is singing a very sad version of No Place Like Home. A little uh, off key. But a little off key. Yeah, but it's, he's definitely setting the mood. We we have no doubt what his mood is at that point. And just to add insult to injury, now an electrical storm is brewing, which brings John upstairs, and he warns him about, hey, you shouldn't be using that radio during the storm. Smith perks up right away and say, why? What, what, what's wrong? Well, it could bring something upon us, a, a lightning bolt right down upon us. And it's a homing beacon. Homing? <laughs> you mean like a, a a wayward missile or some sort of strange uh, intergalactic alien? Sure enough. Well, if you're really worried about it, Smith, then I recommend you stay up all night and guard the rest of us. <laughs> to which point oh, yeah. Smith turns and looks at the radar screen and sure enough goes, there, look, there it is. And uh, we get the line, it's a missile, it's heading straight for them. Now, you know, this this is a very unusual moment in Lost in Space. Don, uh, John is clearly wrong. Smith is clearly right. And do we get even the slightest bit of acknowledgement from John saying, "Gee, you're right. There is a missile coming." Nope. <laughs> he won't. He won't. He won't grant Smith even the slightest uh, acknowledgement that he was right. But when they cut away and show that spacecraft, I've seen that spacecraft somewhere before. I, I don't know what movie it was or whatever, but it is a really cool looking rocket, and it even has little flames coming out the back of it. Yeah. As it's approaching. Yes. You you know where you've seen that space rocket before? You've seen it on Lost in Space because it will be that footage will be used again and again <laughs> and again. It's the same footage they use for nearly every alien spacecraft from 
from this point forward. But it is a cool looking. It looks. It, it, it almost reminds me. You mentioned Flash Gordon earlier. It almost looks like something out of Flash Gordon to me with the fins yeah. and the flames. I- I would have thought like some 1950s space movie, you know, and just because Lost in Space recycles it all the time doesn't mean that they didn't initially, you know, cop it from some other movie. Oh, no. Yes. So uh, uh, the, the words out there, if any uh, listeners recognize that from another movie, do do tell. We, we really want to give credit for the, the initial uh, design of that ship. It's a beauty. Well, yes, I'd love to find out what that is. I'll, maybe I'll try to figure that out myself. But anyway, we're, uh, we're unfortunately, kids, we'd like to know what's going to happen next, but we're going to have to wait until next time because we get the big freeze frame that reminds us to stay tuned for next week and we go to end credits for The Hungry Sea. And I, I have to say I like this episode a lot. I really love the chariot shots, the crossing the ice, crossing the sea, that whole roasting sequence. Um, I think the highlight for me of this episode was really the play between John and Don. I thought that was that was really interesting. What 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 would you say about this episode? I liked it, but I actually liked the play between the robot and Smith and seeing Smith, you know, evolve here to go from a, a murderer mm. to somebody who actually realizes, hey, I'm stuck on this planet uh, and I don't think I want to be here alone. And, right. uh, yeah, you know, the, the robot is not really great company. So uh, it's it's a, a seminal moment, really. I agree. I agree. All right. Well, we've got that one in the can now. Before we before we wrap up, I want to just take a few minutes to talk about these first five episodes because, um, according to everything I've read, these first five episodes really resemble Irwin Allen's original vision for the show, and a lot of the fans consider them to be the most serious sci-fi adventure episodes of the entire season and I are of the entire series really and I I know that you and I both we really like all of these episodes but I'd still like an opportunity for us to maybe rank order them for the sake of discussion so we've got five episodes we've got the the first episode was the reluctant stowaway then there was the derelict island in the sky there were giants in the earth and the hungry sea. So I've I've rank ordered mine. I can I can tell you what I think, or or do you want to go first? Oh, I want to hear yours first. Okay, here we go. So, and I'll give you a little bit of an explanation. I ranked the derelict as my favorite episode. Now I think I know which one is your favorite, but uh, and, and these were all close. I'll, I'll have to say, but the the derelict one out is the first one for me. I I really liked the eerie atmosphere, like we talked about. I really loved that uh, that ship and the way it swallowed the Jupiter too. I thought the music was particularly good. And you know, one of the things when I was thinking about it, I really love the fact that the very first alien that they showed in the series was not, you know, a humanoid-looking alien like Star Trek or even Lost in Space later on, where they'd pretty much all be guys in a in a suit, pretty recognizable. This was a totally different kind of an alien. It didn't speak English. It used those kind of weird electrical charges to, to attempt to communicate. And it reminded me a lot of my favorite sci-fi movies like um, we talked about. There were elements that reminded me of 2001 and, and the original Alien movie. And so I, I think that one was pretty much my favorite. Well, what about the Outer Limits? I mean, that that's what that alien reminded me straight out of Outer Limits. I don't know if you saw the episode of the Doomsday, uh, Don't Open Till Doomsday. But, uh, you know, it was it was very Outer Limits-esque. Mm. And, yeah, it, it did. Yes, it, it had that feel, the Outer Limits uh, feel to it. 
So the derelict was first for me. A close second one was the the Cyclops, the Giants. There were Giants in the Earth. I love that one. That this not only for the Cyclops, but I thought the we were getting a lot of good Doctor Smith humor and character development. Then I put number three. I put Island in the Sky. Um, that Jupiter two crash scene is is uh, priceless, and there's a lot of great shots uh, or great parts with Doctor Smith being all uh, menacing and deadly. I put number four. Uh, the one that we just reviewed, The Hungry Sea. And I actually put the the premiere episode, The Reluctant Stowaway, as my fifth. Not because it's a bad episode. Um, it's great. But it was a lot of setup. And um, I don't know. It just, the other ones were, uh, uh, just had a little bit more impact on me, I thought. Um, again, they're all great. I love them all. <laughs> and if all, if all of Lost in Space was this quality, I mean... Um, we would really be uh, we would really be talking about something, I think. Well, you might be surprised to know that uh, I initially thought this would be easy pickings because obviously the Cyclops one would come first, blah blah blah. But as I thought about it more, I actually realized what you're describing is exactly my first several uh, choices. Derelict would be number one for all the reasons really? we talked about. Yes, really. Uh, as much as I like the uh, giants in the sky and I like the cyclops and everything, that mood is just so delicious and yes. and spooky. And you're going in and out of that ship and everything, and it's just. Uh, I, I think I mentioned to you before how you know uh, Lost in Space was actually that episode was more scary than any episode of Star Trek. Well, when I when I said that, I'm I'm talking about vintage Star Trek. There were episodes of later Star Trek incarnations that were pretty scary, like the Borg and the mm. Next Generation, right. and also uh, and Enterprise. They had an episode in which uh, uh, that that primitive version of the very first uh, generation of the, the Starship Enterprise, NCC-17001A, you know, the one with the uh, guy from uh, Quantum Leap as the as the captain. They oh, yeah, Scott... Uh, yeah, Bacala. Ba- ba- Bacala, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. They encounter a, a ship in space, and it's they think it's deserted, and they go over there, and it's just filled with cadavers that are having their body fluids processed Ew. for something. And then while they're there... The people who are harvesting the the uh, juices or whatever arrive. That was a scary episode, but it that had echoes of derelict in it. You know, it's like this old derelict ship, and you're exploring it and trying to figure it out. And uh, that was very spooky too. The derelict had little echoes of all that. Just as this, you realize when you what it had in common with all these things is this total isolation of space that you and I cannot appreciate until we put our mindset into that notion. There's no place on earth that could possibly be as isolated as space where anything can happen not only because there's no law but because even the physical laws that restrain us here on earth do not seem to apply i mean they do in a a physics standpoint but all the laws of nature that we're used to do not apply they're aliens there's diseases that are unique to uh, uh, uh the galaxy that we would not encounter on earth just anything can happen and that's what the derelict captured so that one was number one for me i did mm-hmm. make uh, island the sky uh excuse me the uh, giants on the earth number two but it was a close runner up because um i actually felt like the reluctant stare- stowaway uh came in very close i i did love the setups on that and i i like the fact that you know you got to see 
Smith at his most diabolical and, mm-hmm. you know, the karate chop and everything. <laughs> I mean, he was a respectful villain, but it was tough too because uh, that was a very close runner up with Island in the Sky. So Re- Re- Derelict was hidden shoulders above the other three, but Reluctant Stowaway, Island in the Sky, and uh, There Will Be Giants were, were very close to one another as far as favorites. And uh, The Hungry Sea, I liked it a lot too, but it didn't seem to have just the total wow factor that the others did. I guess, you know, I was a sucker for the freeze chamber uh, unveiling in the very yeah. first episode and stuff like that and the technology and meeting all the characters. And uh, right. But it, it is a, a real Sophie's choice uh, picking <laughs> these. But the Derelict was number one in my estimation. And I'm not well, surprised that you picked it. I'm surprised that I picked it, but I'm not surprised yeah. you picked it. Well, you did you did surprise me, I'll have to say. But it, as you say, it is hard to decide between all of these. That's interesting. So I just want to make sure I got... So you had Derelict, number and then one. you had Giants, where it's number two, number two. and then Re- Reluctant Stowaways. Reluctant Stowaway Stowaways. three, yeah. And then Island in the Sky, four. And five was Hungry Sea. Yeah, but a very close... Uh, yeah. you know, the, the only okay. ones that I felt was, was a clear uh, non-toss-up was Derelict. As I thought about it, sister, like man, that's just a slam dunk. You can't, you can't compete with that. And and I love the uh, uh, the giants. It's a great episode, but it doesn't. You know, having them fight that giant isn't as scary as them being caught in that in that strange spaceship where anything can happen. And for one thing, the entire uh, family is is menaced in that thing. I mean, they're inside that ship. The claustrophobia of that episode doesn't end until they escape that ship. And that's the very end of that episode. Right. So it, it grabs you, it grabs the ship and holds you and the crew through the entire episode. Well, I thought, I, I thought your comments were spot on. There was so much imagination in all of these episodes, but I thought particularly the way that was realized in the derelict was was really good. It, it was truly alien in every sense of the word. You know, the technology, the design, all the the the, the spider webs uh, inside for the power source. I, I just thought it was, I thought it was really unique. So, gosh, that's really good. Now, I'm glad we did that. I want to ask you one other question real quick because we we have time here. I don't know if you know this or not, but the original Star Trek series when they recently released it on blu-ray they did a complete remake like a digital remake of all of the special effects were you aware of that so you're I, not see- I, I wasn't aware that they did it for the blu-ray but i had been noticing it on broadcast television when they cut away to the enterprise and it's right. over the planet i always thought their special effects were competent to begin with but you could tell that they have done additional cgi and uh, made it even more, you know, it's almost yeah. like Star Wars. They're, right. They're, they're ashamed of their previous, right. you know, generations because this is 20 years, 30 years old. It can't possibly be as good as today. And maybe that's understandable for broadcast television because you are competing with, you know, it's like colorizing black and white uh, TV shows to get to a broader audience. But I would be offended if I bought the collection on DVD and didn't at least have the choice of seeing in it. it in its original form and you know i wouldn't mind if they also had a version that you could see it with the latest uh lights bells and whistles but i want to be able to see it as it was originally done for the same reason you know i mean this isn't shakespeare you're not going to go oh my god you know they they changed it from elizabethan to victorian english you know how dare they but still you know this is something that we saw and it's embedded in our memory and they're kind of messing with that you know it's sort of like wait a minute is this the truman 
show or what mm. you know you just don't know what to believe anymore you're you're comparing old memories with uh, a reality that's been altered and that's kind of freaky well, we must know each other very well because I didn't even get to ask you the question that I was going to, and you just answered it because I feel exactly the same way. It wouldn't bother me if they did the same thing with Lost in Space and they redid the special effects uh, to bring them up to so you know modern standards, but I, I would hate it if they didn't keep the original shots of the Jupiter 2. I don't care if I can see a wire every now and then. Actually, the effects are pretty good, if you ask me, and mm-hmm. I felt the same way. They were competent with the Star Trek series as well but i would hate it if they had you know sort of like george lucas was ashamed of his uh the original star wars special effects because you know, might see a mat line or something like that mm-hmm. or the ship didn't quite move realistically so i appreciate you <laughs> i appreciate your point of view and i agree i agree completely with everything you said well ask yourself this where does this stop Okay, because now it's easy to do the planet below the starship, and it's easier to improve on the phaser shots and stuff like that. But eventually, it's not going to be any big deal for them to go in there on Lost in Space and take away the salad bowl from the, the girl's costume and make her look like a, you know, a real lizard-type alien or maybe make the dragon who blows out the little blowtorch right. make him look like a giant, you know, frightening monster. I mean, this really has no end to it, does it? Right. So you got to draw the line somewhere and say, you know, please, you know, let's keep it. If you want to have, if you want to change the formula to Coke, that's fine. But you, you have to offer Coke classics somewhere. For those of us who care, yeah. Well, the, the half the fun of watching these, as we said in the very beginning, is because we're getting to relive our childhood. And I wouldn't remember the show that way. I'd remember the original Dragon, which was basically a Mardi Gras hat, <laughs> head, yeah. you know, on top of a guy in a costume. And uh, if we want up-to-date things, by gosh, I mean, we've got the new Netflix. They're doing a lot of the same themes and the same stories, and they're using all the state-of-the-art CGI special effects. So, good. I'm glad we I'm glad we agree. We've got Well, that let me blurt out that, you know, what you just described was your attitude about half of it being the nostalgia. I haven't watched Lost in Space since I saw it as a 5-year-old kid. So, 98% of this stuff I have forgotten, and I'm amazed that how much of it that I, you know, don't remember, and I'm enjoying not for the nostalgia but for the first time, you know, and it's like, uh, yeah, I remember the Cyclops and stuff, but I completely forgot about the derelicts. And, and in fact, I didn't even see the Cyclops when it came out. You know, that was just like snips I saw on YouTube or something. I'm, they didn't have it in summer repeats, and I missed it. So mm. all these episodes here at the beginning are like all fresh to me. And it's, it's I, I can see how people fell in love with this series. And of course, I, I loved it as a kid for other reasons. I mean, I remember I loved the 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 robot, and I loved uh, Smith, and I remember, you know, I, I used to the very first experience I had in manipulating my dreams was Lost in Space, and that was as a kid. I used to obsess about Lost in Space so much that as I went to sleep, I was thinking about it, and I would dream about Lost in Space. Wow. And they would be in my dreams. Will Robinson would be on the other side of that seesaw playing seesaw with me, and the robot <laughs> would be in episodes and stuff like that. I don't remember Dr. Smith, which is probably a good thing, or maybe if I did have a memory, <laughs> it's a repressed memory, along with the Catholic priest. I just don't remember him anymore. But uh, whatever it is— Don't uh, ask, don't tell, please. <laughs> please. Uh, it, was a, it was a great experience, but I just don't remember too much of that actual episode, and it does stand alone on its own. It is that good.
Now, right. it may be later on, you know, it gets kind of silly. But if you enjoy it for the, the comedy aspect, I still think it's going to be uh, worthwhile from that standpoint because I love things like Batman, and that got really silly. So sure. uh, I'm expecting to enjoy it all the way to the very last episode. Good. Well, I feel the same way. So, all right. Well, I think we've come to the end. So, um, unless you have anything else, Kurt, I think we'll wrap this up. And so, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the sixth episode of Lost in Space titled Welcome Stranger. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. See you then. All right. Bye bye. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.